So as you read through the New Testament, it's hard not to notice that there's a, a sort of a category of infection that threatens um, people, both saved, what we would call saved or followers of Christ, and unsaved. There are religious people that have a perception of God that you need to follow a whole bunch of rules in order to please God. And then even as Christians, uh, what can continually, because we are still at war with our flesh, the distortion that can still rise up in our hearts is that we are somehow more deserving of grace than others or that we somehow have to please God or he's angry at us if we've done something wrong and those types of things. And that's legalism. All of those things are legalism. And its counterpart is a big word, and that's why it's next week you got time to look this up, antinomianism. Uh, antinomianism is just a fancy word for those that were against the law. In other words, Christians that once Christ came along basically rejected the law and saw the law as an enemy and uh, something that uh, had no bearing on them at all. And that's not exactly what Paul or Jesus or Peter or James or anybody said about the law, but there were antinomianism uh, kind of rose up in terms of being against the law. And so grace, what we have to do as Christians is understand how grace doesn't fall in the ditch on either side of these two areas. Grace does not, or our faith does not fall in the ditch of legalism, and our faith does not fall in the ditch of license or liberty, uh, what in the old days they'd call libertine or libertinism. Uh, in being able to just ignore the law and have no holds barred, so to speak. But what we're looking at this morning, and this lesson you have to put your thinking caps on a little bit, is to open our eyes to the scripture and our hearts to feel and to know the truth that God's word is unearthing for us in this. There's what I'm, what I see here and what I'm getting at is there's a root to legalism that lies a little bit different than what we normally think of as legalism. There's a, there's a root to legalism that lies deeper than just, oh, I understand there's the Ten Commandments and there's all this Jewish law and you're not supposed to wear clothing of two kinds and, you know, you're not supposed to have two kinds of crop in a field or eat pork and, you know, I get it. And we, we throw all that out and, and we don't have anything to do with legalism. But what, what God gets to is that there's a distortion about the very nature of God deeper than that. And what Jesus gets to and what Paul gets to is that even as believers, we have to be careful of the deeper root that underlies legalism that may not show up in the way that we think legalism normally does. And that root goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It goes all the way back to Eve and to Adam. And this fault that comes into our hearts through our enemy causes us to fall in either of these two ditches, either legalism or license. Thomas Boston, a Puritan pastor, wrote, In seeking to bring freedom from legalism, we are engaged in undoing the ancient work of Satan. And this is where the threat of legalism began in Genesis 3.1. He says now in Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Isn't that clever? Satan's first attack was, Hey, Eve. Wasn't it true that God told you you're not allowed to eat from any of these trees? That's what he said. It was a two-pronged attack. The first purpose was to cause Eve to doubt God's word. Did God really say? And he'll press that attack later on when he says, you shall not surely die. In other words, God, are you really sure God said that? And God said you're going to die, but don't trust his word. So that's the first attack, is to doubt God's word. But it's easy for us to miss that there's also an attack there if you read between the lines on God's character, 
Because Satan's question carries with it an unspoken innuendo of what kind of God would deny you the fruit of all the trees in this garden and yet demand you obey him. Because Satan's question was, did not God say that you shall not eat from any of these trees? Now Eve tries to correct the serpent and says, no, 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 God, God said we could eat of, any, of the trees, just not this one tree. But the damage was already done. The seed of doubt was already planted. And the serpent persuaded Eve and Adam that God was not generous, and in fact that he was restrictive and withholding. Why is he stopping you from eating from that tree? So is he a generous God or is he a restrictive God? And we see legalism's root is discovered not in whether we follow rules or don't follow rules, but its root is in our basic view of God. God is either gracious and generous and his favor is a free gift or God is demanding and his favor has to be earned. And failure to see God's love for us expressed in his generosity is what causes legalism to grow in our heart and substitutes work for grace because we imagine God demands it. The essence of legalism isn't merely a mistaken use of the law or believing that God somehow needs a bunch of rituals to satisfy him, but in fact, legalism at its heart is divorcing God's law or God's desire for us from God's character. And it comes out of a distortion of what we believe about God and who we believe God is. And now I just want to look at a couple parables this morning to see how Jesus teases this out. And I could go to lots of parables because he does it in a lot of them, but I'm just going to pick two. The first one, really quickly, is the parable of the workers in the field. And many of you will remember this, but I'll just summarize it for you. It's found in Matthew 21 to 16. Jesus is talking about workers who are helping out a master in his vineyard. The master is God, of course, and the workers are the people of the world. And Jesus is making a commentary here about the Jews who knew God sooner, so to speak, and the Gentiles coming in later. That's part of the reason of the parable. But deeper than that, and while he's teaching that, he's also exposing something about the human heart. Because he says the kingdom of heaven is like a master who goes out early in the morning to find workers, and he finds these workers that say 6 o'clock in the morning. They're standing in the marketplace. They're day workers. They're looking for something to do that day. He says, hey, I'll hire you a denarius a day to come work in my field. They're like, great, just earn my meal for today. But then there's more work to be done. And so he goes out at noon, and he hires some more workers, and they come and start working in the field. And then about 3 o'clock, he goes and gets some more workers, and they start working in the field. And like 6 o'clock, he goes and gets more workers, and they start working in the field. Like 9 o'clock at night, he goes and gets more workers, and they start working in the field. And those first workers, as they see these people coming, they're thinking, great, we get more help, right? Like the master's helping us out, we're, get, we're getting more help as we come along. But then at the end of the day, the master starts handing out the dollars. And the workers who came early get the same denarius as the workers who came late. Even the workers that came at 9 o'clock at night get the same denarius. And you know how the story goes, right? Those early workers start to grumble. They start to resent. And they say, what is the master doing? We were here all day, and we're getting a dollar. They at least thought that these other guys that came later, they saw joining them in the field to help them out, were going to get paid less. Or they thought that if these guys are coming later to do more work, then, you know, we've worked in the hard part of the day. We're going to get a bonus. We're going to get paid more. But that's not what happened. The master gave out the same amount to everybody. And they started to grumble. But the master says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. And I choose to give to the last worker as I give you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? 
So the last will be first and the first shall be last. And it's just amazing here in this parable to me how Jesus unpicks the human heart through this. Right? The all-day workers are thinking that they're going to get some extra help and they're going to get paid more. And they are so resentful when they realize that the master is giving to others the same amount that he's given to them, that everybody gets the same amount of grace, the same amount of generosity from the master, regardless of when they came to him or what work they did for him. And what they have to learn here and what we learn is that the master doesn't operate in terms of a contract. In other words, the grace of God is not a contract. If you do this, then I'll do this. Or even worse, if you think you've done that, that bounds me to something that I have to, or binds me to something I have to do to you, then you don't understand how this relationship works because this is not a contract. Contracts are if you do something, I'll do something. Or if you've done something, I'm obligated to do something. God's relationship with his people is a covenant. God says, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to be as generous with people and generous with all people how I choose to be generous. It doesn't matter what you've done. I am covenanting with you to be gracious and to be generous and to pour out my favor upon you and I decide how that goes. You're not going to bind me by something you feel you've done for me. And this is how grace exposes the legalistic heart that treats God as though we're earning something from him and binding him to our standard of merit. Because some of us can feel like the the early in the day Christian workers. And we think, I've been a Christian for a long time and I've served in the church and I've done this and I've followed God. And then I see him come along and I see his favor and his blessing on people who are smoking and drinking and partying. And why do they get the favor of God when I've been such a good person the whole time? And we have this little, this is where the heart surgery comes. You have to think of your own heart and think of the people that you know and think, has that little bit of resentment ever come up? Why have these people been blessed? Why would God look at the sinners and the prostitutes and the drug users and the abusers the same way he looks at me? Surely he must look at me differently. But his grace and his merit, his favor is extended to everybody because he's a covenant God who gives generously. Now you're thinking, okay, we're, I sort of see what you're saying, but can you, can you make, bring it a little closer? Jesus actually does bring it a little closer. He's telling three parables in Luke, and he's telling the parables that says to the sinners and the tax collectors, which were like the lowest of the low in Jewish society. They were co-conspirators with the Romans. He says he was talking to the sinners and the tax collectors, and he was also talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, two audiences, sinners and tax collectors, scribes and Pharisees. And he tells the parable, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the third parable, which we all love and know, the parable of the two idiot sons, or... If you prefer a more positive spin on it, the prodigal son. Um, But it really is a parable about two brothers. It's a parable about two people. It's about two dummies who don't understand their father. Okay? And you could call it the parable of the free grace father. Or you could call it the parable of the, the found grace libertine. Or you could call it the parable of the disgraced legalist. Because that's what the parable is about, all three of those things. So again, I'll just summarize it for you. You remember the two audiences of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons in Luke 15 are the sinners and the tax collectors and the Pharisees and the scribes. And so again, you know how it goes. The father, the younger son, the father has two sons. The younger son comes to the father, basically says, you know what, I've been in your household long enough, Dad. I'm getting a little restless. I just, I just want, I want, I basically want my inheritance now. Give, give me what I'm due. 
Okay, which is essentially the equivalent at that time of saying, Dad, you're worth more to me dead than alive. Right? It is. He's asking for his inheritance. He's saying, essentially, if you died right now and I could just get the money, I would be happy. Horrible thing to say. I want the goodness of you. I want the good things of you. I want the good stuff that you have, but I don't want you. I just want your stuff. Okay? Keep that in mind. The father says, okay. And he divides the shares between his sons. Okay? He says he divided his property between them. And then we know how it goes. Right? The younger son, he goes off into the world. He's jet-setting around. He buys a Ferrari. He's attracting all the women because he's got money. You know, he's buying the $100 bottles of wine. Uh, he's living the good life. He gets hooked on cocaine. Who knows what happens out there, right? No, like seriously, I mean, this guy was just, he was out there. And we know that he was out there in terms of Jewish society, because he even gets to the point, after the whole thing comes crashing down, he's feeding pigs, right? The last thing a Jewish boy would ever be found doing is feeding pigs. And so he finally crashes and hits bottom, and he's feeding pigs and feeding pigs and feeding pigs, and we don't know how long this goes on. Could be weeks, could be months. But then it says, and when he came to himself, which is a great phrase, when he came to himself means when he finally kind of woke up. It means that, he kind of realized what was going on. The phrase is used in Acts, I think it's uh, 12, when the angel comes to Peter in prison. And, and, you know, Peter is almost like a dream. The chains fall off and the guards ignore him and the doors open and he walks out. And when he gets out in the street, it says Peter came to himself. It's like he kind of woke up. And that's what the phrase here, this boy, he kind of woke up, he came to himself, and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And he says this, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Okay, that's what he says. But when he comes home, to this once despised father who he wishes was dead before. He starts to blurt out, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he wants to say that. But before he gets that out of his mouth, this father who has run out of the house to greet his son and hug and kiss him in the laneway, he can't even get it out. He rehearsed the line. He said, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And then he wants to go on and he wants to say, treat me as one of your hired servants. But when he actually gets to his father and you're reading this, he never gets that line out. He doesn't get to the part of treat me like one of your hired servants because the father won't let him. You see, the father will not have the son back as a hired servant. He does not want his son back earning some sort of merit. He... The son does not have to repent enough to be worthy of God. The fact that he has run back to God is enough. The fact that he has run back to his father is enough. And the father's grace will welcome him and adopt him and bring him back into the family as a full son again without any more repentance. There is no hired servant. There is no working to achieve the restoration of the relationship. There's no work that needs to be done to be justified, to be qualified with his father. The father's just overflowing with generosity for this son that squandered his share in the kingdom. And yet he welcomes him back, not as a servant, but as a full son. But to our point today, the father has a burden for his other son too. 
And this is an astonishing display of grace that it's having. This is the surgical grace. The grace of the master in the vineyard exposed the resentment and the legalism that said, I should work for the master's favor in the vineyard. And here, the father's grace and generosity shown towards the prodigal son does its surgical work on the heart of the elder brother. Because the father leaves the house again. Just as he went out into the laneway to greet his son, it says he leaves the house again. So this is someone who's outside of the household right now, and I think there's some symbolism to that, to go find the elder brother, to go find his eldest son. And it's his brother who's the climax of the story, and we often miss this because we love that first part so much, right? Because it's our story of running back, just like Steve told his testimony. But just like jokes... Parables have the punchline at the end. Okay? And you remember, Luke's setup for this parable was that there were sinners and tax collectors and there were scribes and Pharisees, the legalists, right? And not only that, the Pharisees and the scribes, it says at the beginning of Luke 16, grumbled saying, Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. Right? So this is what Jesus is responding to, is these Pharisees saying, look at Jesus eating with these tax collectors and with these sinners and these prostitutes and these deadbeats and their resentment of it. And so then he gets to the punchline of the parable of the two idiot sons. And it's the other son who brings in the closing argument, right? He says to the elder son in this story, or the elder son, it says in the story that he was angry in verse 28. He says, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed, but you did not even give me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. And the father says, all that, I have, all that is mine is yours. And so here again, Jesus, by showing the grace of God, has done this surgical work on the human heart, the legalistic heart, a heart of this elder brother that still carries with it the poison of doubt that Satan injected in the garden, this poison of doubt that the character of God is not as great as it really is. That somehow God is not as generous and gracious as we imagine, and that he is somehow restrictive, and that we have to work for him. And that's the heart that's exposed in this elder brother. The older brother views the father as demanding and restrictive. You never even gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends. Rather than generous, that everything the father has is his. Everything the father has was the eldest son's. He participated fully in the household. And actually, if you look back to verse 12, this is key. The father had actually already divided the shares between the two. In verse 12, it doesn't say, okay, younger son, I'll give you your share, and left the elder brother out. It says he divided the shares between the two, between them. The elder brother had actually already received the generosity of the father. And he didn't see it because of the seed in his heart. And in fact, he would have received a double portion. If you go to Deuteronomy, the elder brother actually received a double portion of inheritance. And if my mother's listening right now, just disregard that part. Because the elder brother got double, and verse 12 says the father had already divided it. And so here you have this elder brother who had actually already been given his portion But in his heart, he resented the father because he felt he had done the chores, he had done the time, he had looked after the flocks, he had cleaned the house, he had, you know, managed the servants, he had done all this work. And why did the father celebrate the return of the prodigal? 
The fact is, Jesus is pointing out here is that the older son already had everything all this time, but his distorted view of God prevented him from enjoying the generosity and grace that was already his all the time. It was right there for him. He was benefiting from it the whole time that he was there in the household of the father. But he didn't trust that his father was generous, nor did he enjoy the life that he had. His faithfulness to his father and the chores that he did in the household all of that time were not done out of love and as a response to a generous father. It turns out that that whole time he was doing them just to justify himself by his own merits so that he felt he was worthy. And as a consequence, he imagined that everybody else should work just as hard as him. John Colquhoun Another Puritan pastor writes, when a man is driven to acts of obedience by the dread of God's wrath and not drawn to them by the belief in his love as revealed in the gospel, when he regards God more as an avenging judge rather than as a compassionate father, he shows he's under at least the prevalence of a legal spirit. But then he goes on. Furthermore, when his hope of divine mercy is raised by the liveliness of his frame and his duties. In other words, when our our hope in mercy is elevated because we feel we're doing a good job, and it's raised by the liveliness of his frame and duties and not by the discoveries of his freeness and the riches in redeeming grace offered in the gospel, or when he expects eternal life not as a gift of God through Jesus Christ, but as recompense from God for his own obedience and sacrifice, he plainly shows he's under the power of a legal spirit. What's he saying? He's saying, there's a way that grace can do surgery on your heart. Do you feel that you have a better chance with God the more good you do and the nicer person you are? That God's going to be much happier with you in that regard in terms of your salvation? Or do you feel much more secure in the mercy and the favor of God when you discover the freedom and riches of the redeeming grace offered by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Where do you go to look to find your assurance? Do you go to Christ on the cross and the free gift of his sacrifice, which God has promised is sufficient? Or do you go to your work and to your history of time with God and say, God and I have been in a really good place for a long time, so I'm pretty sure I'm good? That's a legalistic heart. God does not show us his favor and his grace because of what we've done. He does it because he's a generous and a good God who is waiting for us to return so that he can hug us and bring us back into the family. Not about what we think we're going to earn for him in his household. The brother probably never thought of himself that way. For all those years that his brother was gone, the older brother probably just thought that he was being a good son. Right? That he was just living a proper life and he was just being obedient and staying out of trouble. That he was a good person. And that God the Father would reward him for that goodness. Or at least, he was at least trying to color inside the lines. And he knows that maybe he slipped up now and then, but, but God would be merciful when he slipped up. But it was only when he confronted, was confronted with the Father's display of grace to the younger son that the root of legalism in his heart was exposed. I don't think he even knew it was there all those years. And that's when he had the chance to learn that God will rescue who he will rescue and it does not have any bearing on whether we're good or not because we will never be good to merit God's grace. It's only based on whether we trust in returning to a father who will welcome us. And we trust in the generosity and the promise that we find in Jesus Christ. 
but his legalistic heart. And our legalistic heart can begin its complaint, right? But if that's the gospel, won't people then live lawlessly? Won't people then abuse that? If, if it doesn't matter what we do, if God's grace is not based on merit, you know, our legalistic heart begins that, that, that seed is still there and that root is still there and we think it's going to get abused. Aren't they going to abuse that grace? And when you start to think that, that's exactly when you're starting to understand how generous God is and how gracious his favor is because that is exactly the complaint that people had of Paul's teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Romans, right? They said to Paul, well, then I will sin all the more so that grace can abound all the more. And we're going to get to that next week. But when your perception of God's character and nature and your perception of his favor and his grace unmerited on you and unmerited on all those other people who you don't think deserve it, And you start to think, if God is that gracious, then people are just going to abuse that grace. They're just going to sin. Then that's right where God wants you. You're now starting to get just exactly how abundant his grace is. That is how abundant it is. It should cause us to just be flabbergasted that he would have that much favor on people who are not worthy. And that includes us. It's exactly how we're expected to react to his grace. Now, we love this parable because we identify with that prodigal son But as I said, the punchline is at the end. And the point that Jesus was making was to the scribes and the Pharisees. Or let me update it. The point that Jesus was making were to the people that claimed to be followers of his. The point of the elder brother is you don't find the elder brother out in the world. You find the elder brother in the church. It's the Christian heart that is prone to think that God should, after now accepting me, should tighten up the restrictions a little bit. Because I see the types of people that his grace and his favor are going out to, and I'm not sure they measure up. And that kind of heart is found closest to home. That kind of heart is found not out in the world, but close to the church. And in fact, the humble and contrite heart that the Father celebrates is more often found in the pig pens. And that can make us uncomfortable. So we've got to let God's grace do its heart surgery. What these parables illustrate is that we have to have the right understanding of God's generous and lavish grace. And that we don't have, if we do have a right understanding of God's generous and lavish grace, then we will never look down on another person, especially another Christian, as though we have merited God's favor more than they have because of their life or their actions. If we understand God's grace rightly, then we would never assume that there is anything in our devotion to God that is the reason for God's acceptance to us as opposed to someone else who lacks what we think we have. Well, we're more devoted to them, so then therefore God must have more merit for us. We would never assume that it's because of our years of commitment to Christ or our wise choices that we have been made accepted accepted and acceptable by God. Right? We're not going to get to heaven. And Jesus is going to ask, why do you think you should get into heaven? And our answer is not going to be, I was smart enough to believe in Jesus. No, you weren't. We were all idiot sons. Neither of us were smart enough or wise enough. It was God's grace that he acted towards us to give us the faith to respond, to open our eyes like that that son who's out at the pig pen. He came to himself. That coming to himself is the grace and the favor of God and his generosity. That's not something the son did. That's something God did, and he did it for all of us. We're not going to get to heaven and say, yeah, we were smart and these other people weren't. God's going to say, your eyes were opened because I woke them up. I opened them. And you responded because it was my generosity and my grace that you were responding to. 
We're never going to resent the generosity and grace of God poured out as favor on others who we deem unworthy. The medicine for any of these illnesses in our heart is to return, of course, to the gospel. Every person is justified and qualified before God by grace alone through faith alone. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus. And all the promises of God are drawn to us along with Jesus in his personhood. I'll just pause there for a second. What that means is we don't just have grace as a thing. Okay? We don't just have justification as a thing. We just don't have a rightness with God as a thing, a righteousness as a thing. What we have is Jesus. We have a person of Jesus Christ. And all of those things, the grace, the generosity, the favor, the righteousness, the justification, the mercy of God, they all come in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's meaningful. Maybe we'll talk more about that next week. But let me go on. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. No prison cell existence. What the law could not do because of our weak flesh, God has done instead by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemns sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The spirit of bondage is gone if we don't try to walk by our own flesh. That paragraph was Romans 5, 1, 2 Corinthians 1, 20, Romans 8, 1 to 4, and 15. So this, this, this is the result of what Paul has explained earlier in Romans. He says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. Paul's saying we have nothing to boast about. There is nothing, whether we are the 6, 6 a.m. workers or whether we're the elder brother, we have no reason to go to the Father and boast or go to the Father and expect any different grace from Him that He extends to everybody. And that is good news for those of us in the pig pen, and that is great news for us even who are closer to God, but are trying to work ourselves into favor with God, and we will not succeed. The good news is God loves you, and his favor is upon you because of his mercy and his grace and his generosity. Everything he has is yours. The key to demolishing a legalistic heart and purifying ourselves of any self-righteousness or resentment in others is to return again and again and again to that gospel that it is by Christ alone, through grace and faith, that we have any standing before God. But once you have that standing, you are, you are full participants, sons and daughters. You get it all. He's a generous and merciful and gracious God, and he wants us to have it all. But we have to do this. We have to let grace do this surgery on our heart and just keep at it because that root is there in us that we will somehow deny the nature of God, that he is that generous, and we'll start to think that he needs this from us or needs that from us, or why does he demand this or why does he demand that? And then, as we're going to see, that's the surgical work of grace. Next week, we're going to look at the saving work of grace. And how it draws us not into license and into antinomianism, but how it draws us into joyful obedience. Let's pray.